I want to share with you guys, we're, we're kind of in the process for shifts and stuff. I know I've kind of kept this above. We've uh, kind of stepped over that $400,000 mark, uh, which is just amazing and really good. Um, it's going to take us, it's probably going to take us just a minute to kind of uh, get through that and get past that. But uh, uh, this, is, this is a long game. This is going to be a long process. And so uh, there's just something great about what's been, what's been given there as well. Uh, we're in a series right now called Ask Jesus. And uh, we're just trying to kind of explore some questions, some open-ended questions that, that maybe we don't traditionally speak about in churches. But maybe there's some, some stuff here that helps us to just, to just ask some questions about, hey, what do we really want to know about? What do we really uh, want to talk about in our world here and now? So I want to ask you guys a question, a little bit of audience participation to start here. If ever I've done a survey in the past or uh, we've done a church survey or something like that, we ask people those questions. Hey, how are your kids doing in kids or students? You know, how are we doing in worship? How, you know, how are we doing in preaching? What, what's something we could do a little better, you know, with the coffee bar or the welcome? We, we kind of ask these questions. There's usually a question on those that says, what are some sermons that you would like to hear? What, what are some things or some topics that you would like preached on. Now, if I asked you that question this morning, what would you say? You can just call them out. What would you really like to, to hear something preached on? Lukewarm Christians? Is Michael struggling with that right now and you want to kind of get him, get him going? Okay. Lukewarm Christians, that's a good one. What else? Marriage, always marriage, right? And whoever says marriage, your spouse is like, why are you saying you want to hear sermons on marriage, right? What else? Singleness, okay, maybe some relationship status as well. What is it? Temptation. Are you struggling, Melina? <laughs> do you want to come up and confess? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. What else do you say? Inner vows, okay. And we, we go through all these topics. I will say by far the number one thing that people generally want something preached on usually has to do with either the book of Revelation or the end times. People really want to hear about this. And so the question we're going to ask Jesus today is, okay, what's the deal with the end times? You know, how are we supposed to see this? And today I want to be clear. Today is part one of two or three or maybe four or maybe 87. I'm not quite sure exactly how many we're going to spend on this. I have found that in churches you have pastors that generally follow one of two or maybe three ways. Number one is the pastors that never, ever, ever speak on this. Number two, the pastors that sometimes speak on it, but they're careful. I would be in that category. And then you have the pastors that that's really all that they ever talk about. Okay? And I think sometimes in our churches, we really want to know some of these things. Now, today, I want us to unpack a little bit of it, and we're going to do some of that. I am going to probably preach closer to 30 minutes today, just so that you know, because I got gypped last week because we had baptisms. And while those are great, okay, and then, the, and then the week before that, we were honoring our seniors and mothers and all that other stuff. So I'm going to preach today, okay? <laughs> yeah, and people like it, okay? I'm just kidding. Uh, but, let, but let's talk about some of the language behind this. So there's a lot of different language. Some people call it the second coming or the rapture or the second advent or um, the eschaton. And we'll talk about these words a little bit as well. Eschaton is a scholarly or theological word. The study of eschatology simply means the study of how things will end the study of the end times, the study of those things that are, that are coming. Now, as we talk about this, this stuff, as we talk a little bit about end times, there's going to be three parts, and I'm going to share the first two of, you, uh, two of them with you today. The first part I'm going to call the setup, and I'm going to give you some rules and regulations about maybe how we need to approach these things. 
part two, which we'll also try to get to today, is the context. Where, where does this come from? What, what is it supposed to be about? How are we supposed to talk about this? What are we supposed to understand? What is the writer of Revelation? What does John assume that the people already understand before they read that? Sometimes I think what we do is we just kind of start with the book and we get confused and we don't spend enough time understanding kind of the ramp up to what we're actually talking about. And then what we'll probably do, it'll be next week and maybe weeks to come, part three will be the revealing, which is obviously where the word revelation comes from. It is a it is a revealing. I don't want us to start with part three. I want us to do part one and two. So today we're going to start with the setup. Uh, we're we're going to kind of talk through some of these things. And I think I've written about seven little rules that I think would be helpful for those of us uh, that really want to get into this a little bit as well. The first rule is this. The Bible is not a code to be cracked. Let me say that again. The Bible is not some mysterious code that needs to be cracked. Now, I think sometimes, listen, there are some things in the Bible that are mysterious and hidden, and we're going to talk about those things. But I think it's one of the worst things that we can do to say, hey, we have discovered, there was a book written years ago called The Bible Code, and it was all about, you know, finding these cru- these cruxes in, in Scripture and counting letters and counting words. Listen, it's a terrible way to read the Bible because it, you can find almost anything you want to find, and people use it generally in a prophetic sense, like, well, there's, there's Adolf Hitler, and there's this, and there's that, and, and I want to tell you that that's not the way the Bible was written. Uh, that's not the way the Bible should be read. In fact, one of the, one of the greatest uh, hardships when preaching the book of Revelation is that we're up against some literature in the world. You know, was it, is it, is it Tim LaHaye that wrote, is that, is that who it was? He wrote the Left Behind series. A lot of people loved those series and read those. But they're, they're in the same context as the Da Vinci Code. Yes, they seem like there's a lot of truth to them, and in many ways there is. But they are not biblical works. They are not giving us some way or some lens so that we will understand. And I think a lot of people sometimes build theology off of something that, that is not actually real or true, that's written with some literary license and meant to entertain as well. We, we would never watch a Netflix show to understand Jesus. Okay? We've got to learn to kind of realize that the Bible is not some code that needs to be cracked. The second thing is this, maybe an admission, that we care about this or we are obsessed with this far more than God is. God never says, you need to figure this out. He never says, your livelihood or your salvation depends on how much of this you, you get. And we as people, I don't know if this is true for you, sometimes it's true for me, when we find something, we become obsessed with it. Like we want to find everything about this one thing. And, and the, the bad part of that is that often things just start to sound the same because they affirm what we already believe. And we just maybe have to admit, hey, ma- maybe I'm getting a little too, you know, tied to this and I'm not really able to hear other things. Maybe a word of comfort, number three, is this. God is not confused about it, okay? God is not confused about what he is doing in the world or what is happening. And I think sometimes we think he is, right? Does he even know what's going on? Does he know what's happening? God is not looking down going, huh, I didn't see that coming. Why did this, oh, oh, uh, you know, he is not confused. God is not confused about what is going on in the world, okay? We are the ones that take a little bit of time 
uh, to catch up. And maybe just keeping ourselves in the right perspective there can be helpful as well. Number four is this. Knowing and understanding are not the goal. Living with anticipation is. Sometimes in church, we get confused about this as well. We think that church is about us growing in only our knowledge and understanding. And while we should have some understanding of these things, that's not, God never says, I mean, he does say things like, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But those are contextual to relationship. He's not saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of knowledge just so that you'll know more or understand more. And I think sometimes even when we're in seminary, this is something you have to fight against. Because knowing, oh, I know more than the, the regular people, or I understand. And, and this is what is scary even for pastors. You've got to be careful what you give to your people. Yes, I need to try to study and know things so that I can share good truth with you. But when we look at Revelation, it's not about understanding or, or figuring all these things out. It's about saying, hey, I need to learn to live with anticipation for you, God. Because a lot of the early, early Christians that were reading this book, they thought Jesus is coming any day now. Any day now. It could be, it's probably going to be tomorrow. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely going to be before the end of the year. Okay, okay, it might be by Wednesday. But it's, they live that way every single week. And we kind of lost that. I mean, how often do we think about, hey, is today the last day? We don't, we don't live that way, not the way that the early church lived. Number five is this. Bad theology leads to bad practice. You can make the word of God mean anything you want it to mean. But most of the time, if you look at cults, if you ever watch a documentary or something, it doesn't always start with something that's terrible or something that's bad. It starts with something that's good that then gets twisted along the way and ends people to, you know, causes people to, add, uh, to act badly. Sometimes the way that we see God or the way that we see things or the way that we're taught things makes us act in certain ways. And there's a word for this. It's the word theonomy. Now, I know that's not a word you probably heard a lot. It's tied to two Greek words, theos, meaning God like theology, and nomos meaning knowledge. And it's when these two things come together, often in very bad ways. Now you might say, well, what is theonomy? Why, why are you telling us this word? Theonomy is the hypothetical belief that society will be ruled by God's law in which we will enforce it through violence. Okay, This is where, if you look back through the pages of history and even maybe some recent events, you will see this is where something goes wrong. Where people gather together with good-hearted, well-intentioned belief, but then they believe that it is their duty to enforce God's law on everybody. Whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, if you're on a different side, or if you're in a different context, that it is, it is our job as God's people to act with violence towards those that do not believe in God's law, or that are not living up to that in some way. It is an awful practice. It never goes well, I want to tell you that. Now, some people will say, but God sometimes calls his people to violence. Sometimes God says, you need to go into that city, and you need to destroy everything, and that is true. But God always starts by reasoning with those people and saying, you need to turn back to me. They won't. And then the, the key ingredient is God is the one who says, you need to go. This is where bad theology comes in because some, some leader will get up and say, God's telling me to tell you that we need to go and do this and we need to act out in violence. And I'm telling you, it is a notorious bad. 
but we justify it with some sense of belief. Which leads me to number six, and this is a helpful one. God does not need our help to be God. God does not need my help to be God. This is something that Simon Peter learned the hard way. Matthew 16, Jesus says, who do people think I am? Simon rightly says, you're the Messiah, the Christ. Good job, Simon Peter. You nailed it. You got it. Now I need to go to Jerusalem and die for the sake of God. And Simon Peter says, okay, God, let me just stop you right there. Let me just, let me just tell you how I think this should play out. He gets called possibly the worst name ever. Sometimes that's what happens. God is wanting to do something. Well, hey, God, I got this. I'll, I'll take care of this person on Facebook for you. Yeah, let me, I'll, I'll just tell them where it's at. God does not need you to defend him. God does not need you to stand in the gap. And just a word of advice, if God is on mission, it's best to get out of his way and get behind him rather than stand in front of him. God does not need our help to be God. Number seven, this is the last little uh, guide. We must read the Bible carefully. We must read the Bible the way that it was intended to be read. The Bible can't just mean what we want it to mean. Sometimes I say this to people when we're talking about Jesus. People say, well, I like this version of Jesus. This is not Talladega Nights with, you know, the little baby Jesus, okay? You can't make Jesus whoever you want him to be. He already is someone. You can't say, well, I like this version of Jesus because that may not actually be Jesus. In fact, if you are only following a version, well, I only like the good story uh, of, of Jesus. You're not following the true Jesus. Jesus already is someone. The Bible already says something. We can't just make that mean whatever we want it to mean. That's why the book of Revelation, the, re the revealing, is an eschatological apocalyptic book. And those are all big fancy words. But what they ultimately say is the revelation is the revealing of God. Eschatology is study of the end things. Apocalyptic means something is hidden. They're not written with clear, upfront language. It's not a parable. It's not a story of Jesus. He went from here to here to here. It's written with different language, and so we have to read it the way that it was intended to be written. That's why the book of Revelation and the Bible, for that matter, is written with literal, symbolic, and metaphorical language. There's many more, but those are just a few. And sometimes deciphering between, okay, is this like a real thing? Is this not a real thing? There, there's times when Jesus does this. Remember, in your Bibles, it'll tell you what parable it is. But when Jesus was just having a conversation, he, wasn't, he wouldn't stop and say, hey, I'm going to teach you a parable now. You may want to write this down. This is a new. He would just teach into it, and halfway through, they'd realize, oh, no, no, he's not actually telling us something literal. He's sharing a symbol or a metaphor or an image with us as well. When we read the book of Revelation, hopefully we know that Jesus is not actually a lion or a lamb. This is, this is metaphorical. This is relatable imagery. This is imagery that we can understand because everybody knows what a lion is and knows what a lamb is and knows that if you put those two things in a pen, we know what the outcome is going to be. And I think sometimes we get locked into some of the images that, that is not meant, they're meant to be images that we share, that we understand God as well. Okay, so that's all the setup. So for those of you that, uh, you know, tuned out for part one, 
Uh, welcome to part two, the context. We're going to share the context of these things as well. So let me try to let me try to get through some of this today. Who give con- who gives context to everything in Scripture? Okay, we're in church, so if you don't know the answer, the answer is usually Jesus. Jesus gives context to everything. Jesus helps us to understand what God is ultimately doing. And there is a particular context that I think has a lot to do with how we read Scripture, especially how we read the endings of Scripture. Jesus was a devout Jew, and so Jesus has a lot of interaction with the temple. And the temple, if you remember, it started as a tent in the desert. Then they wanted a king, and so they got that. And then David was the king. He wanted to build the temple. He wasn't allowed to. And then the only son that was left that became king, Solomon, he's the one that built the temple. And the temple represented the presence of God on the earth. The temple was the place that people saw and experienced God. It is a precursor to people understanding being in the presence of God. Ultimately, if we are in the presence of God, where will we be? In heaven, right? That's the goal. The temple is the best image that shares the interaction and, and, and the inter- you know, intersection between God and his people. And Jesus engages in temple. He is a devout Jew. Jesus made sacrifices. He, he went through the rites of Judaism. That's what he did in his life. And so when there are texts written about the temple of God, we need to pay attention to them because they're going to help us see what the temple couldn't do and what God is going to finish in the end. Now, to be clear, we need to realize, even when we read these texts, that the temple doesn't always mean the temple. Sometimes it means the will of God or the work of God or what God is trying to do in the world. Much of Revelation should be read in the context of the temple. That's where Jesus starts, and that's where we should as well. Okay, so I'm going to read a few texts here, and I would encourage you guys, if you get on Google and type in Jesus and temple, it'll give you every single scripture about it. You can even read how the temple started. You can read what it was for. You can read everything that you want to know about it. Uh, but Jesus in the temple, Jesus has many interactions with the temple, and, and we should read scripture in context of that. Okay, here we go. I'm going to read a bunch of them out of Luke. Luke has a lot of temple language, um, but you can go back and look at it as well. Okay, so the first part is Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple. Jesus is, is kind of, uh, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's, um, gro- he's been born to Jewish parents. He's gone to the temple. He's been circumcised, you know, uh, Abraham covenant, all these other kinds of things. But then what happens in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 22, it says, When the time came for the the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, that's Mosaic covenant, every firstborn male must be consecrated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice in keeping to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves, or two young pigeons. Now, what we also see in this text is that Simeon, an old priest who said, is said to be filled with the Holy Spirit, God promises him and says, 
you will not die until you meet the Messiah, he goes to the temple. And he meets Jesus, and he, he blesses him, and he says stuff over him, which is very powerful and meaningful. Then we fast forward a few years, but only a few verses in Luke 2 to verse 41. It says, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. This is where they, they celebrated what God had done in Egypt to free them as slaves. When he was 12 years old, so there's, you know, probably 11 and a half years there, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Okay? This is a, a couple that did not ride a parenting plan. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Wouldn't you love to leave your kids for a day? I'm not saying that, I mean, this is the word of the Lord. Maybe there's, anyway. Then they began looking for him along with their relative, among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him where in the temple court, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? She asked. Didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying. It's an interesting story, isn't it? If we fast forward even further... This is now the ending of the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, where, where, where Jesus is about to go to the cross. And one of the first things that happens when he comes into Jerusalem is that he goes to the temple. And you know the story. It says, when Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling, saying, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Fast forward even a little bit more, just the next chapter. Chapter 21, verse 1, it says, As Jesus looked up, he's at the temple. He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put more in than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she has given out of her poverty. She has given everything she had to live on. Jesus has interaction with the temple, and it's something that happens. Even Jesus in the Gospel of John, he looks at the religious leaders and he says, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. He's not speaking about the structure. He's speaking about himself. Or in Matthew 24, where he basically makes a prophecy to these people. Matthew 24 is prophetic literature. It's about what will happen at the end of time. And he says, truly I tell you, not one stone will be left on top of another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, this is imagery. I know the temple is destroyed about 35 to 40 years later. It doesn't literally mean that no two stones will be on top of each other. It's image language that should help us understand what God is doing and why God is tearing things down 
that they can ultimately be rebuilt into his image again. The combination of literal and symbolic and metaphorical and hyperbole and euphemism, these, all these kinds, of all these parts of speech that we learned about in English, these are things that are taking place in the book, in the Bible, but also especially in the book of Revelation. You see, the temple was designed to anticipate the coming of God. They went to celebrate Passover, which was the lamb being slain so that the angel of death no longer had no power over them. That is the story of Jesus. Jesus spends a lot of time in the temple, and his disciples and followers later will connect that he is ultimately the Passover lamb, not for slavery from Egypt, but for slavery from sin. He's going to share this. He's going to break open the kingdom of God in powerful ways. That's why, the listen, the violation of temple was started with good intentions. I don't think they, the, the religious leaders started by saying, hey, let's, let's really take advantage of people. In fact, I think what, what started when Jesus first goes into the temple and he sees them buying and selling. Listen, if you lived hundreds of miles away and it took you multiple weeks to travel to Jerusalem and you had raised this beautiful lamb that you were taking on this very treacherous journey, listen, some of those, sometimes you would drop the lamb. Sometimes it would fall off a cliff. Sometimes, sometimes you would lose the animal or it would be, become defective along the way. And the religious leaders were like, well, we can't give this one to God. So they said, hey, you know what, just, just, just trade yours in, buy a new one, and you'll be good. But then somebody in the midst of that, because there's always a few, that greed starts, yes, trade it in for 20 bucks, we'll, we'll sell you a new one for 200. They started abusing people, and it's, it's not that they're buying and selling, it's that they're violating people. Because temple is meant to be a place where people come to meet God. And any obstacle to that, Jesus says, I'm going to take that away. That's why that story is so powerful and so different. The reason why they started doing that was because of an overread of Scripture. They took it on themselves to say everything that they thought the Bible should mean in the midst of this. And they had a violent response to people's response in faith. They thought it was their job to share with the people and, and to impose the will of God on people. Jesus and temple is the context that we should use to read scripture in this. Okay, three minutes and we'll be done. Part three, we're going to do a little bit. We're going to do more of this next week. But the revealing. The numbers and images of Revelation are literal, symbolic, metaphorical, hyperbole, euphemism. They're all different kinds. Uh, There's some images that maybe you've heard before, like the 24 elders or the 144,000, or the thousand years, or trials and tribulation, or the reign of Christ. And we're going to try to talk through some of these in, uh, in, in the coming, coming weeks because they've, they may not mean exactly what you think they mean, or they might mean exactly what you think they mean as well. And we will never understand uh, a book that we do not read. A lot of people come and go, I want you to, to tell me, preach some sermons on Revelation. My first thing is, are you reading it? Oh, no, I've never read it before. Okay, so how am I going to teach you something that you're not going to participate in or be a part of? Listen, it's important that we read Scripture. It's important that we spend time each day. If you have not read this book, try to sit down and start somewhere. It starts off real easy. So don't worry about it. When you get to like chapter 6 and you go, 
what is going on. That's when you come back to church next week, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk through it, and we'll share it. We'll say, hey, what, what might be happening here? What is going on? A lot of people fear the Bible. Well, I, d- I just don't understand what I'm reading. Start simple. Read the Gospels. Read the story of Jesus. Don't start with Revelation, but if you'd like to read it as we go through this, go ahead and read it. The Bible does seem to be clear about one thing, and I think Revelation in and of itself, even though it's a lot of complexity going on, choosing a side is what matters most. Whose side are you on is the question that the book answers. I'm just going to read two quick texts, and then I promise you we're done. There's a couple of images. This is Revelation chapter 4, and it's really a great, a great thing. It talks about this, this scene with God. And everybody's standing around in the throne room. And it says, day and night, they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, it says, and they all sang a new song, saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language people and nation you have made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands they, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders and in a loud voice they were saying worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all of all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. That's the context of this. That when John writes this book, what he wants to tell people or let them know is we don't have to wait for it. God's greatest revelation is not coming. It has already come. It's the man Jesus. That he has saved us. That he has given all. So that we can be on his side, not because we deserve it. Because that's just how good our God. Go and read the book. Share time with God. Maybe together he will reveal who he is. And our only response is to follow. Father, today, I thank you for just this opportunity we have to uh, spend a moment together in your word. I just pray that that as we engage in speaking about you making your way known into the world, uh, making your, yourself known to us, Father, that we would, uh, we would be faithful servants, that we would respond in kind. God, we don't deserve anything that you give us, but we're just so grateful you have chosen us, that you have given us a chance to be a part of who you are and what you've done. May we be faithful servants. May we just, when we, when we 
forget how to pray, may we just say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty.